Hi everyone, you are listening to The Web of Better. The Web of Better is the first installment of Future Proof's podcast series, where we will be hosting conversations with some of our favorite community organizers, builders, and founders. Throughout our first series, we will discuss what's happening within the world of emerging technologies and the ever-evolving World Wide Web. Questioning the variability for individual autonomy in a world of algorithms, resilience of social networks in the face of changing sentiments, and, of course, how best to preserve our privacy and data rights with or without the help of legislation. We are joined by technologists who are challenging the status quo to build internet technologies that prioritize people, both online and off. In our first installment today, we will be chatting with Annie Brown. And before this episode kicks off, I do want to make an editor's note that there is some persistent clipping. Uh, We have tried to fix that, uh, but just a heads up. We hope you enjoyed the show. Here's Annie. Today, we have with us a very special guest and dear colleague of mine, Annie Brown. Annie's research focuses on exploring the effects of algorithmic bias on historically marginalized creators. As the founder of Reliable, a participatory content moderation system that enhances the precision of machine learning through user input, she aims to reduce AI bias and provide a better online experience for marginalized communities. Her insights on the creator economy has been featured in Fast Company, Vice, and Mashable. She's a Wharton VIPX and Stanford Ignite program alum. Annie identifies as gender fluid and pansexual. Thank you, Annie, for joining us today. Uh, Before we get started, I would love to delve into your background uh, because I find that there is a lot of kinship in technologists that have started out in the humanities um, that have transitioned into technology. Uh, For our listeners, we both graduated from the same university, uh, the College of William & Mary, and we have similar backgrounds and and majors. So we'd love to hear how your background has influenced the conceptualization of your tech company. Yeah, well, you know, so excited to be chatting about this with a fellow William & Mary alum because I think it was interesting. I actually went to um, a data talk. They were doing a San Francisco William & Mary alumni event a few blocks from my house, actually. So I signed up and I went and the president of the university was there. And then also um, one of my former professors um, who actually was my, I guess, like, uh, the professor of the class where um, this idea Lips um, was sort of created uh, is now the Dean of Arts and Sciences. And so she was on the panel as well. And it was just really cool because I went to the event and she recognized me and that was so cute. And then (laughs) I told her, 
what I was doing around data and AI. And she just thought that was so cool. And then in the panel, I learned that William & Mary is now doing, um, they're working on a data sciences um, university. So essentially like it wouldn't just be a part of the computer science program. It would be a whole data science thing where, and their, their goal is to bring humanities and technology and data sciences together um, and inform better data decisions based on humanity. So I was like, oh, this is so cool. And just like, of course, William & Mary would do something like this. So it was really neat in the talk because they were talking about the importance of um, the humanities lens and that's what they had to bring. And then I was really flattered because they actually called me out on stage and said, you know, we have an alumni here who started out in our gender studies program. That's my, my background is gender studies and is now working in the field of, of AI and data sciences, particularly to help um, marginalized voices, uh, you know, not be impacted by AI bias. And so I just thought that was really cool. And essentially the way that everything started was I, I started LIPS as a zine on the William Mary campus and it really took off and I just absolutely fell in love with it. I fell in love with his like women's history, the history of sexuality and particularly focusing on like the history of censorship um, when it comes to LGBTQ communities and social movements. And that sort of all led to then once I was, you know, in the tech world for a little while and working on AI and writing about AI, really bringing those two things together. And I built Lips as a social media platform for the LGBTQ community and quickly realized that like there was no um, content moderation solution that fit our values. Cause essentially content moderation is very much this antagonistic um, approach between users and moderators. Moderators are the police. Um, and they are policing everything everyone has to say with very little input from the users, um, which leads to a lot of marginalized communities not being understood because the ones doing the policing, the ones doing the data labeling are often white, cis, heterosexual um, men. And so, you know, we then built our own content moderation system for the LIPS social media platform. And that's where... Um, reliable came about. And so, you know, the fact that this content moderation system actually came out of a gender studies class project uh, means that everything we do is gonna be very, very heavily informed by social sciences and social science research. Definitely, that is so interesting. I think there is something to say about the heft that a humanities degree gives you and i think it also informs a lot on how newer forms of technology are being built i think in in my experience and the folks that i've talked to a lot of folks have come from non-technical backgrounds and have used that to help enrich whichever part of the tech sector that they are working within. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, while you were kind of laying the groundwork within, you know, William Mary, 
were there aspects of the technology space at the time that you are noticing weren't meshing up to what you envisioned technology to be? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, when, when lips really started to take off as a zine, even in my, I'd say like, uh, junior year, um, I was already sort of making plans in my head to turn it into a social media network. Um, because, you know, we started lips as a zine because as an alternative to women's magazines, uh, that's what I grew up reading. That's what sort of informed my understanding of sexuality, gender, body image, and um, had a negative impact on on my mental health. And so essentially we created this zine to be an alternative to that. But then as I was, um, uh, you know, going through college and social media was becoming more and more prolific, and this was before uh, Instagram, like Facebook was pretty much the only one, um, I was noticing how social media was becoming the new women's magazine as far as having an impact on, on young people um, and their mindsets and how they understand gender and sexuality. And especially growing up in the South, uh, you know, not getting access to um, a comprehensive sex education. Like, you know, online was where people were getting sex education, information about sex. So that was my first, I think, like, really starting to understand um, social media as mm -hmm. as a part of media studies as a whole. Because up until then, my focus had really been on magazines, um, but really starting to see how how social media was was shifting. And then I think from my, you know, deep dive into social media and always being fascinated in social media, it really became clear that content moderation and the algorithms that show us what we see, um, those are really what you could call like the, I guess what I would equivalent, uh, make equivalent to like the magazine editors, right? Mm, Cause like, yep. you know, thousands of articles are being submitted to Cosmopolitan magazine, but they decide which ads are running. They decide which articles are running and it's all based on an agenda that that corporation has and so it's similar, very similar. So I think that's why moderation became very important to me because that's what determined what we were seeing, what we were not seeing, um, and, and sort of defining the narrative of mainstream understandings of sex, sexuality, and gender. Definitely. And I think the point about it starting with a zine is so important because I think about the the thesis that I had written my senior year it was also kind of focused a bit in the media studies aspect um, it's focusing on the role of Samistat which is the Russian uh, version of zines they were incredibly prolific during the Soviet Union and served as a conduit for the counterculture and alternative uh, kind of subcultures that could not openly express themselves under the Soviet regime. And I find that those older pieces of media can really tell us how to form not just content moderation, but also 
how to kind of form decentralized mm, networks mm-hmm. of community building. And I'm wondering if, you know, as you were putting the pieces together for LIPS, did that idea of having a decentralized community come across come across your mind? Yeah, it's really interesting you say that. And I, you know, we're going to have to do a, a thesis exchange after this, because <laughs> that being said, um, yeah, when I was making LIPS, one of the core elements that I think really made the zine possible was that we had a P.O. box and mm-hmm. we had an anonymous email inbox mm-hmm. and essentially um, because it wasn't me, it wasn't me putting out my own work in the zine. It was asking the campus for submissions. And it was basically sort of like around the same time as post secret. So it sort of had a little bit of that vibe where people could submit things, but it wasn't, I wasn't like asking people to submit embarrassing things or things that they were ashamed of. It was like, just share whatever you want. It was really just like, what do you want to express? What do you want to get out there? Um, with the understanding and, and we put this in our, um, I think our first issue that, you know, creating art is just one part of the healing process of Mm -hmm. making art. It's actually a big part of what makes art healing is when you share it with other people. And so that was sort of our, our uh, mission was to get people to be comfortable with sharing things. And we knew that people, a lot of people wouldn't want to put their name on things, especially related to sex, sexuality, and gender. Mm -hmm. So we had a PO box, we had this anonymous email box. And I remember when I was thinking about turning this into a social media app, I was thinking, and this was, you know, uh, back in, I guess, like 2000, uh, 2011 ish. I was thinking, I can't really do this because there's no way to really maintain the privacy of users. I mean, yes, they can be anonymous, but, you know, the people that really sent in some of the most powerful things were the people that were dropping letters in our PO box. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that always kept in mind. And even on the current, um, uh, you know, the current version of lips, we still really haven't gotten to that point of total anonymity. However, um, we built, like, it was actually when I started learning about blockchain, um, that I really saw, and that's what got me so interested in blockchain because I saw the possibility of truly anonymous Mm -hmm. posting, but posting where being anonymous wouldn't force you to give up um, ownership of the art that you share. And so that's, that's why we actually built the Lips app on Node was because we have designs to build this feature where you can upload to lips and you can upload it and be completely anonymous, but you'll have your own um, information, your own key that will essentially allow it. Um, if, if you ever want to come forward and say that was mine, or I have ownership of that, you can use that key. So that's where I saw blockchain creating the possibility of a, anonymous but still empowering creators to have ownership like they did in the zine um in the digital sphere i think you you touch on something that's 
central to I feel like a lot of what's happening in the social application space today is that we are having this tug of war with privacy and what it Uh means to embody a private space and maybe even a kind of private persona. I did not interact with social media until I got to college. So this kind of private world that I had inhabited before going to college was really striking to me seeing the flood of info that users would post online. It was it was actually quite quite shocking to me <laughs> that people would post that. But I think you raise an interesting point about the veil of advantage that privacy can afford to folks right. that, you know, want to share parts of their background, their identity with a greater audience, but also need to have that privacy for whatever reason. And I am wondering, as a founder and builder in this space, how you're seeing the trend of embedding privacy into social applications uh, evolve? Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I mean, I think blockchain is going to play a huge role in how that's in how that's happening. I think there is this balance between there's a few things like I think it's privacy ownership and safety are all sort of these key things that we want but it's like how can we have all of them at the same time and that's that's where the real challenge is and so like for for us what we've been doing i think a lot of the a lot of the solutions we've built into um like the lips ux and what we're building into um the reliable moderation algorithms those are always the three pillars that we're always trying to like kind of keep at the same level. And I think with what happens sometimes with privacy or anonymity online is that you're giving up that ownership and you also could be giving up some of uh, safety as far as, you know, uh, not maybe personal safety because your privacy sort of protects that, but safety as far as protection from plagiarism or, you know, things like that. And I think about the people, you know, cause I think if you are anonymous by choice, because you're like, I, I want to be anonymous. I have a right to ownership by being anonymous or um, not having any of this attached to me, my name, my IP, um, then that's fine. But I think there's a lot of people online today that are forced into anonymity for safety reasons. So the, the example we often give on Lips and why a platform like Lips is important um, is because let's say that I am a um, young woman living in you know a rural part of the United States and I've realized that I'm a lesbian 
Um, and one of my favorite things to do and something I found I'm really good at is writing, you know, uh, poetry about lesbian experiences or erotic fiction about lesbian experiences. And I can't, I want to start creating a portfolio online, but I can't share that because if anybody found it, even if it's on a site that no one is going to, um, that would risk my personal safety. So the stuff that we're working on in Lips is like, how can we help creators like that post anonymously without uh, and, and stay safe, but also at the same time maintain ownership? And that's all sort of this balance. And I think especially on social media today, where you see a lot of trends in monetization mm-hmm. and, you know, social media becoming a career for so many people, um, if that career is not available to everybody because some people have to really hide in the shadows of the internet, then that's a form of financial discrimination in a way. So that's those three pillars are always things that we're thinking about all the time. Definitely. It's, it's the trickiest part about adding social policy to the tech sector, in my opinion, is really being keyed in to the trade-offs of those three pillars and specifically it's something that uh, I was joking with another colleague of mine (laughs) and basically said you can't have all three but I also wonder at the same time is there a world in which we can have all three and what does that look like or what will that look like in the future yeah i think that's and that's where you know sort of i have been so inspired by my work with um gender studies black studies feminist studies because that philosophy tells us that it is possible you know that that thinking through these problems these aren't just problems that we have to deal with. These are problems that are set up by um, systemic structures and they're complex systemic structures, but they're not natural. And so I think that's where um, my social studies really comes in to help me create these technologies because I think a lot of times, specific, uh, if we're talking specifically about the content moderation world, we are told that if you don't want, um, you know, exploitative sexual content online, if you don't want child abuse content online, you're just going to have to deal with having art censored. You're just going to have to deal with LGBTQ uh, communities being censored. You're just going to have to deal with Black Lives Matters groups being censored. That's just the trade-off for safety. And that's what we're being told. But from my research and my understanding of, you know, how these structures work, I know that that's not the case. It's just that the people who are creating these technologies don't have a good understanding of these structures. So they think they're impossible to break down or navigate. And they're also not being informed by diverse groups that would then help them Mm -hmm. understand how these things could be navigated. So, at Reliable, what we're really working to do is use the social sciences to inform technology decisions and literally putting, you know, feminist thinking into our code 
um, that helps navigate some of these things. I had a really interesting conversation with somebody at who was um, formerly a moderator at a really large um, tech platform. And they were saying how frustrating it is that, you know, on, on these trust and safety teams, the moderation teams, you basically have a room of male engineers who are sitting there being forced to decide what's okay and what's not okay to see for people to like talk about. And, and I get it why that would be so frustrating. I mean, a lot of these people who are making these moderation decisions have no background in um, the, the understanding the complexities and the, the histories of these very complex social issues. So it's, it's no wonder that a lot of times those, those decisions go off the rails and, and don't make sense to uh, a lot of us. Yeah, and I think it's, it's something that we're going to get into a little bit after this short break. We're going to dive a bit deeper into the governance structure of our current and legacy uh, social platforms and how Reliable does things a little bit differently. just returned from our break and Annie and I have just been talking about the structures at play with our current systems of content moderation on social platforms. And I think at the heart of this discussion is this idea of black box governance, which is a term used in some academic circles to refer to the content moderation policies. Uh, From the user side, this may look like shadow banning, which is a term that has risen to prominence lately to refer to the deceptive practice of suspending accounts deemed inappropriate or in violation of community guidelines. There is a great article, which will be linked in the show notes from research scientist Kelly Cotter that dives into her term of black box gaslighting or governance and how various content creators perceive and contend with that. Cotter, like many users, mentions how these content moderation policies disproportionately affect marginalized communities. And Annie, we've talked about this a little bit earlier in the show about how this can be very detrimental to not just the content creators, but communities as a whole, when you're not interacting with and engaging with members of your community because they're being censored, that has a level of trauma that can evidence itself within a group. And I would love for you to explain to our listeners how Reliable aims to combat this type of governance bias. Yeah, so I think something that not just reliable, but in, you know, the the communities that are working around issues of bias in content moderation, like a term that people are really like um, uh, 
settling on is something that's incredibly important is transparency. So uh, in California and in the EU, they've recently passed um, some laws um, and there's actually some things coming up in, on a national standpoint when it comes to the U.S. as well, but some laws about content moderation, transparency and what that looks like. And I think there's still an evolving conversation about if these laws are really going to have the impact that they want to have. Mm-hmm. Um, if, because basically they're just requiring reporting, right? They're not yeah. requiring any um, structural infrastructural changes. Um, and I think that's where some studies are being done now around, okay, is reporting really what we need or is there going to be an infrastructural change that then allows this to be more preventative, not just, okay, well, I see in your report now that you haven't been very transparent or like I can see a year after what you've been doing on moderation as opposed to being seen like in the moment what's happening. So um, at, at Reliable, I think what we're, what we're trying to do is build transparency um, into our system. Were, were you going to uh, ask something? Yeah, I was going to add for the viewers who, or the listeners really, who may not know, there have been a couple of those those landmark uh, yeah. kind of regulatory actions. The main one being in 2022, the European Union introduced the Digital Services Act or the DSA. Yep. Uh, and this aims to kind of be a tool in making the internet a fairer place. Uh, that's my air quotes for those that mm-hmm. see it. <laughs> by uh, standardizing new legal responsibilities for online platforms on why certain content has been removed and what users can do about it. And this is, it's tough to talk about uh, from a policy perspective because having worked in the policy arena before transitioning into the tech sector. Working within policy is very tough and making these big strides can be incredibly rewarding. And I think the hard part about this is when there are regulations such as DSA, you know, we policy people get very excited. However, the accountability is the piece that tends to kind of be dropped in some cases. I'm thinking about the, but doesn't have as much heft as people suspect it to be. So I wanted to kind of bring that into to what you're saying. Exciting to have this on a policy front and a regulatory front, but it's the accountability piece that often misses the mark for a lot of us. Right. And I think that's where sort of we come in or, and my perspective is, is that I think that the policy side is incredibly important, but then I think you also need alternatives being built in time. So you need policy that's, um, you know, showing these big tech companies, like or putting a stop to the big tech companies being completely out of control, but then you also need alternatives being built to show that there's a different way of doing things too, that it's not just, you know, that they're doing all these terrible things because I think with policy, it just, it takes time for things to change. And then also from a business perspective, you also need the market 
you need that market pressure. So if there's not alternatives coming up, pressuring these companies, I think the market pressure is actually more uh, scary for these companies than the government pressure, right? Yep. So, so that's where we're kind of at. And, and when it comes to transparency, there's a lot of different ways that we approach it. But I think a good overall way of describing it is that companies like Meta, their approach to content moderation um, and the, the content moderation third-party providers that are out there is top-down. And what happens with top-down is that you have a lot of rules being made at the top that filter down to the users, and then the users, you know, see a little bit of part of that. They see the effects of it. You know, the top-down, the people at the top get to decide what the users get to see, and that's where you run into those issues like what happened with the Facebook files where this woman revealed that you know, uh, Meta had completely different rules for celebrities versus, you know, your day-to-day creators. And that would have never been revealed. And I don't think the government would have ever found out about that, you know, if it weren't for whistleblowers. And so the top down leads to a lot of corruption, a lot of hidden agendas and a lack of transparency for users. So what we're doing at Reliable is instead we're doing a bottom up approach to content moderation where it's not that users are getting necessarily a say in what you know we're doing, but actually they're an integral part of how content moderation systems are built um, and how that manifests in Reliable is one, um, our data, data annotation. So we have a participatory data annotation process. And um, essentially what that means is that the so every social media platform uses data annotation and and how that works is that a third typically a third party provider or an internal team member will start labeling pieces of content on the platform and those labeled pieces of content go into a data library that data library is what's training the machine learning algorithms as to um what to flag, what to let to be on the platform, what to delete from the platform, what users to remove from the platform. And so that training data is really the foundational piece. Um, and so if things, things go wrong there, then things are going to go wrong everywhere. And so for us, instead of saying, well, to, to us, it didn't make sense that a third party would start labeling all this data when, especially when it comes to marginalized communities, um, that third party typically is not going to be a member of, of that marginalized community. And so um, they're not going to understand the contextualizations of that image. Um, and so when a machine's not given any of that context, then that machine isn't going to be able to understand the difference between erotic art and pornography or between um, uh, anti-racist activism versus hate speech. So those are the types of contexts that through community data annotation we're able to do. And what's really cool on the transparency side is that I get to see on my image exactly how my image is being seen by a machine. So like if, if I'm on Instagram, I don't know that my image is being labeled as sexual solicitation until I get Mm -hmm. a warning from Instagram saying your image has been flagged for sexual solicitation, but on a platform like Lips or any platform that's using Reliable, you can see exactly how, um, you know, a combination of you, other users, and the moderators have agreed to label your um, content. 
So that's one way. And then we also have um, basically co-design sessions uh, for users to come up with their community guidelines for each platform. Mm -hmm. um, and we're bringing in Web3 elements as well to create things called moderation DAOs where um, people can elect community members to be on like what Meta's oversight board sort of looks like. So mm -hmm. instead of having these people that are disconnected and not, I mean, they're users of the platform, but they're not your day-to-day -day community users are being affected by the platform um, and they're not elected by any, you know, community. Um, these are actually elected community members that then get to have a direct say with the platform and are sitting at the same table with the platform making um, policy decisions. So those are a, just a couple of examples of how we're designing a bottom-up system. You mentioned a couple of very powerful things. The, the first that comes to mind is that context piece. I think that for a lot of folks who do engage in the tech sector, uh, that conversation has just started, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It should have been integrated into the road mapping and development of various products within the tech sector long ago, uh, but it's just now coming to the fore. And when we think about who comprises the tech sector, it is cisgendered, heterosexual, white men who are leading a lot of the charge in the space. And from the standpoint of yourself kind of building in the space, are you engaging with other researchers and engineers that are as committed to breaking up that monopoly and providing that context that is needed for you know machine learning systems to have the most i would say up-to-date and equitable pieces of training data uh, they can yeah so i think um what's been really exciting is that there's more people understanding the need for a different perspective in tech coming through. So uh, one group that comes to mind is a great organization called Collective Media. Uh, so their website is collectivemedia.info. And they are a group of social media platforms who have essentially signed a pledge to build differently. So to build for communities, by communities, um, to combat some of the more toxic elements of social media. And we're really excited to be a part of that group um, because they really understand the need that from, from when you are building a social media platform from the get-go, designing your content moderation system in a way that reflects the values of your platform, mm -hmm. um, I think more people are becoming aware of that. So it's like you can't just go and plug in a third party content moderation system when that content moderation system was 
built around the status quo that this that your platform is trying to combat. And so I think that's really inspiring is you have these platforms that are opening up a demand for a different way of doing things. So, you know, from everything from content moderation to, uh, you know, mail servers to internet servers, you know, all these types of things. When you have platforms that are doing very well and getting great responses from younger generations because younger generations are wanting more ethical uh, social media platforms, then that opens up this market for infrastructural technologies that also reflect those values. So I think that's been really exciting for me. And I think also, um, you know, feminism becoming more, um, mainstream for people, you know, you don't necessarily have to go to a gender studies course in college to get some of the main tenets of, of feminism these days. And I think one of the main aspects of feminism is understanding not just intersectionality, but also positionality. So really understanding where you fit in privilege, because um, that's one thing at Reliable that has sort of shaped our thinking is that Yes, we have a very diverse team from a lot of different backgrounds, but that diversity does not make us an authority in saying what the rules should be for different communities. Even the communities that we belong in, we, you know, I, I am not an authority on the pansexual community. So that's why this tagging system, that's why bringing users into it and, and the more data points, the more perspectives we can bring into a discussion, that's where you really start to see the elimination of bias from data sets. It's not just like, oh, well, we have a diverse engineering team, so that's going to fix the problem. And I think more technology groups um, are understanding that. I'll also mention um, DWebCamp is another great group of decentralized people building platforms in a new way. So I think DWebCamp and Collective Media are two groups that um, I'm just really excited about because there's a lot of platforms they're building that are raising the bar for, for other services. Yeah, and I, you know, the, the piece about that positionality is important because I think about, you know, what you had said about being a member of a community, you don't want to kind of make all the rules. You want to have and ensure that other members of your community can speak up and state, you know, differences or changes that may contribute to an entire patchwork of ways in which to interact with that community. So I think that that is incredibly uh salient and, and needed, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's been fascinating how much I have learned by really um, having this, ask, this idea of co-design, of listening to users. Because I know, you know, in every business class, they tell you, you know, interview your users. But I think it's this idea of not just interviewing your users, but building with your users along the way. So like every iteration you make, even before, you know, you go out to test it, you have a community and then being very intentional 
about who you're pulling into those groups. So like for instance, for building lips, we had a few different um, groups and we made it so that the people in those groups would also feel very comfortable expressing their opinions. So we had like um, a black creators group, a native community uh, creators group, a sex workers group, um, a small business owners group, a larger business owners group. So like, you know, and then we had also sessions where we mixed everybody together. And I think that really helped us understand that there are just so many perspectives coming into this. And, and I really assigned to the, um, the, this, well, it's a great book called Design Justice. And then there's also a concept called the curb cut effect, where essentially you design products for literally the most marginalized person who would ever possibly use your product. And then because you're designing for them, it becomes a better product for everybody else. And that's what we've really found that, you know, when we're talking to our technology with VCs and things like that before, they're sort of like, how did you think of this? Like, you know, why, or, and they also sometimes in a more negative way think, say, well, why wouldn't Meta think of this? You know, <laughs> like, why haven't they come up with this yet? And we say, you know, it's because we're designing for the most marginalized. And a lot of times that goes against, you know, the, the tech ethic or a, a business ethic to say, well, you know, how am I going to meet the um, requirements of the most people? But really, if you if you design for people at the margins, you're going to solve a lot of problems that other people aren't even looking at. So I find that to be a really powerful tool that I think almost anybody building tech can use. I also think it's it's such a tool of the trained humanities mm-hmm. person as well, because I think that's that's something that you learn in a lot of social policy courses is that when you are thinking of crafting a policy, you want to think about who is the most marginalized because benefiting them benefits a wide array of, of folks and I wish that would become commonplace in not just the policy realm, but also in the tech realm as well. So it's, it's amazing to hear that you are implementing that. And I think it's just another, another win for being a humanities trained person yeah. into the tech world. <laughs> um, but I, one more thing I will add too that I've noticed and was very surprised by is that I think in the world of content moderation, there is a huge divide between moderators um, and trust and safety teams and their Mm -hmm. users. I think like trust and safety teams, of course, want to keep their users safe. That's why a lot of them got into the field and they care about the users. But there's also this um, at some platforms, I've noticed there's this antagonistic view against users where there's this divide where you know, we're the sane ones, we're the ones that understand the rules and users are just running wild and they're all a bunch of perverts. And it's just (laughs) like, it's, it's for me, it's just like very alarming, I think, because I've noticed in my life when you treat a group of people or you treat a person with disrespect or you expect them to do something awful, it's more likely they're going to do something awful, you know? So I think like, I think what the self-governance piece does too is it gives ownership 
to users of their communities. So, you know, sort of like painting a mural in a, in a neighborhood. It's like you give ownership to people, you give them um, the ability to feel like they are responsible for this space and therefore they'll care for the space more. And I think also it, um, yeah, imbibes users with more respect and respect for each other, respect for themselves, respect for this platform. So I think even just changing that attitude in the self-governance space um, can have a really transformative impact on online communities. Oh, Annie, I had a absolute last talking to you uh where can our listeners find you if you want to be found <laughs> yes yes i do want to be found um so you can go find more information about reliable at reliable.ai and that's the word reliable with without an e dot ai and then you can also learn more about lips by going to lips.social. That's a LGBTQ social network where um, Reliable is the primary content moderation system. And you can follow lips on Instagram at lips underscore zine. Awesome. Thank you so much, Annie. It was a pleasure talking to you. Yes, it was so fun talking to you as well. And uh, can't wait to keep following Future Proof and all the great stuff you y'all are doing. <laughs> awesome.